If we were to ask churchgoers from virtually any evangelical congregation, what is Christian worship? I'm sure that we would get several responses, among which probably two would be most prevalent. Some might say that, that worship is what we do on Sunday morning. Yeah, and probably another response would be, well, worship is music, or they would at least equate worship with music or singing. Now, I'll say while Christian worship includes both of, both of these responses as an outward expression of worship, um, they really fall short of what the Bible reveals about true Christian worship. And we're going to take a look at several passages this morning that will help us understand what Christian worship is, worship that is acceptable to God. My main text today uh, is actually Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you will, if you will, turn in your Bibles to that passage, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and as you do so, if you can, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we read this passage together. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And now a short prayer to ask God's blessing. Father, your people are gathered here around your word to hear from you and not the ramblings of a man. So, Lord Jesus, may your spirit come now and speak to our hearts, to those of us who are here to hear your word explained. And help me, God, to faithfully proclaim your truth as it is revealed in your word. Accomplish your purposes in our lives as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In my study this week on these two verses, I thought, this will be a piece of cake. Oh, no. When I get to studying... Um, uh, I had, you know, had some Greek in seminary, so I had to get out the, get, shake the dust off the Greek grammar and lexicon and, and get to studying, and I'm going to, we're going to talk about some of the Greek words in this passage, because they are very important. That's okay, don't, don't fret, it's okay. It's my job as the minister to explain to you the sense of what the, the original writer's intent is, and that's what I'm going to try to do today, Okay. But uh, from time to time in my studies, um, I find that, uh, not all the time, but I occasionally find Philip's paraphrase of the New Testament to be a helpful resource uh, in studying a New Testament passage, and uh, particularly with the sense and the meaning of the Greek construction. And today's passage is actually no exception. 
So if you'll allow me, I'm going to read Philip's wording of Romans 12, 1 and 2, in case you find it helpful as well. Philip's uh, writes for verse 1, With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Verse 2, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. That's Philip's paraphrase, and I hope it's helpful for you. Now, as we move toward discovering what acceptable Christian worship is in the eyes of God, I've got four main headings from this text, and Doug's going to bring them up. In case some of you are making notes, you'll have some main headings to put your notes under. And our first main heading that I want us to take a look at is Paul's appeal. Paul's appeal in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, as we approach this text, as any other text in the Scriptures, we have to approach it in its context. We have to understand, in this case, who Paul was addressing. He was writing to the believers in Rome. Now, Paul's primary purpose in writing Romans was to teach the great truths of the gospel of grace to these believers who had never received instruction from any apostle. Okay? But unlike some of Paul's other epistles, like First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, his purpose in writing was not to correct some incorrect theology or to rebuke ungodly living. For the Roman church was doctrinally sound. These were believers in Christ. But like all churches, it, it was in need of some rich theological teaching and practical instruction, which Paul provides in this letter. So Paul begins verse 1 with a strong urging or a pleading to his readers. And then he says, therefore. Well, we know about that word therefore, right? We need to go back and find out what's therefore. So, and this is no exception. Therefore refers immediately back to the last phrase of his doxology of praise that he gave in, at the uh, verse 36 of chapter 11, where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So since all things are for God's glory, we must respond by offering ourselves for that purpose, right? And I also think that Paul's urging here finds, finds its motivation more broadly in the entire argument that proceeds in the first 11 chapters of Romans, which actually revealed the magnitude of God's grace towards sinful mankind. So I believe it's, it's really essential for us to have an understanding of um, our text and to refresh ourselves on the highlights of those key doctrines addressed in the first 11 chapters. Because they really, they're the underpinning or foundation for everything he says from chapter 12 onward in that book. So let's, um, let's take a look. 
just a quick review of those key doctrines. First, we see mankind's sinfulness is declared. Paul writes that sin separates every human being from God. Hear the word from Romans, 11, uh, Romans 3, rather, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then how about Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is devastating news. It's devastating. There is no hope. Oh, but wait, he's not done. Next we see justification by faith is revealed. Paul will teach us that complete freedom from judgment and the bondage of sin comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. For in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then he says in Romans three twenty-one to 26, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just read that verse. And they are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is the best news possible and the remedy for the separation from God. But he goes on. From that point, we see sanctification as ongoing. Through Christ's atonement, believers are released from sin's power and set apart for the service of God. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism in the death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he goes on. Reconciliation is accomplished. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ renews the relationship between God and man for those who believe. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verses 10 and 11 and says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, this is the doctrinal foundation that Paul put in place. And it's no wonder that Paul breaks out into thanksgiving and praise to God at the end of chapter 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? When's the last time the wonder and the beauty of God's grace gripped your heart? Well, Paul bases the motivation of his appeal in our text this morning on the mercies of God. See the next phrase in verse 1. Paul says, by the mercies of God. Okay, here's where the Greek comes in. The word by is the Greek preposition dia, which in this context conveys the fundamental idea that the mercies of God are what makes the following request, present your bodies, possible. But note, note the word mercies. What is mercy? Is it mercy getting what you don't deserve? And that's exactly Paul's point in the first 11 chapters of this book. And God's mercy toward us is the motivation to which Paul appeals for what can best be described as the only fitting response to God's mercy. John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans, writes, This exhortation teaches us that until men really apprehend how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never, with a right feeling, worship Him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and obey Him. So, what is the only fitting response to God's mercy? What does Paul tell us to do? Well, let's go on in our text in verse 1. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice the priestly language used by Paul. Words like sacrifice and worship. This language harkens back to the old covenant sacrificial system. You remember the old covenant sacrificial system, right? Where God accepted sacrifice of dead animals. But now, because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice, those animal sacrifices have no effect. They have no effect at all. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once 
for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Paul tells us to present or to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word body here has in mind the whole person, not just the outward shell, the whole person, physical body and the inner person with all of its facets. Let's recall that Paul is addressing believers here. So the soul is not the issue. The souls of these folks already belong to God who redeems and regenerates the soul of every believer. Remember, you can't be a living sacrifice if you haven't been made alive unto Christ. It's Christ living in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, that makes possible the offering of ourselves to God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, practically speaking, the, the major focus on the presentation of our body is living sacrifice. It relates directly to Paul's admonition in Romans 6.13 about our conduct as we live out our life in this world. In Romans 6.13, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, about this struggle against sin, Richard Lenski, who was a prominent conservative Lutheran pastor of the early 1900s, he, he writes this, in this physical world, it is our body which meets the sinful contacts and impacts by which the power of sin invades our entire being. Let us not forget that Satan's lies use our ears as a means of entry. Also our eyes through the printed page, in our case, computer screens, mobile devices. Not to mention only just these uses of the bodily avenues. After our whole body has been presented to God by a voluntary act, all these roads into our being are to be open only to God. Only open to God. So, so God wants our arms and our legs, our tongues, our ears, our eyes, our sexual organs to become instruments of righteousness. The sacrifice then is not only living, it is moving about and doing things in the world. Newsflash, we are to be the walking dead. Oh, no, I'm not talking about the zombies from the TVs and movies, okay? I'm talking about being believer priests who continually engage themselves with wholeheartedness to the pursuit of holiness or moral purity in their new nature while putting to death the sinful deeds which originate from our old nature. This is being set apart to God. This is obedience from the heart that's acceptable to God. 
But Paul continues on to tell us how God views the activity of being a living sacrifice. He tells us that being a living sacrifice is what? Our spiritual worship to God. Now, the word spiritual is used in the English Standard Version to translate a Greek adjective, logikos. Logikos means reasonable or rational, and it's used in only one other place in the New Testament, and that's 1 Peter 2.2. And Peter uses that word to describe the milk of the word, and that translation actually fits that context. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, the ESV, the New American Standard, and the Holman Christian Standard translates that Greek word as spiritual. The NIV translates it as true and proper. The King James uses reasonable. I personally think that reasonable fits the context better, considering the context of and the content of verse 2 and the fact that Paul could have used another Greek word that he's used before that means spiritual, but he didn't in this case. So for both linguistic and contextual reasons, it seems best to understand Paul's statement here in 12.1 as follows, that it is eminently reasonable, both intellectually and spiritually, for believers in Jesus, because of what they've experienced in the mercies of God, to dedicate themselves wholly or completely to God. In fact, this is your proper act of worship as rational people. So looking at the uh, word for worship, the primary word is a verb in the New Testament for worship. It's proskuneo. And it's always used when the object of worship, whether it's Jesus Christ himself physically or some other person or a, um, a physical idol, is actually physically present to prostrate oneself before in reverence. Okay? Now, the Greek noun latreia, which translated worship in our text in verse 1, is the second most used word for worship in the New Testament. It conveys the idea of priestly service. In fact, it's translated as service in John 16.2, where Scripture says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, it's also translated as worship in Romans 9.4 and Hebrews 9.1. And both of those passages make reference to the priestly service of the Old Covenant worship. The interesting thing I found out about this word usage is that it's, it's never used to describe false worship or the worship of idols. But it's, it is used to describe worship during Christ's physical absence from the earth. So Charles Ryrie comments on this, well, perhaps the reason this word is used of the believer's worship rather than the first one we talked about, proskuneo, is simply that Christ is not visible today and our worship is to be shown in service, to be shown in service. So we can see that our typical use of the term worship doesn't really fully fit the biblical definition of what God desires of us as worship. Certainly, our reasonable service to God isn't isolated to just music or to the activities that we, that we participate in when we gather together. But these are expressions of our worship, 
just as the way we act at school around our friends or when no one's around and watching. It includes oh, our attitudes at work, how we spend uh, the money we make, how we treat people, uh, what websites we visit, how much we eat, what, what, how much time we spend on social media, the words we speak and the tone with which we speak them. The list, folks, goes on and on and on because there's no area of life on this earth that's off limits to God. So let me ask you a question. Are you truly worshiping God with your life? That's a hard one. As I prepared for this sermon, the sword of the Spirit cut in my direction too. So the person who stands up here to preach is not immune to what's being preached. It does the work on him or, you know, before he comes up to preach. But are you truly worshiping God with your life? You know, God has always required wholehearted worship. Even in the Old Testament, listen to Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Jesus even repeated this verse to the Jewish leadership, uh, the synagogue of his day in Matthew 15. They followed the outward forms or expressions of worship, but missed the key component. They missed the heart. Write this down. Empty ritualism does not bring closeness to God. But you may say, Ron, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, I've heard you say all this, and I, I'm just not quite sure I understand how my life is a sacrifice. Um, and practically speaking, I mean, how do I present my body to God as a sacrifice? Well, I think, I think the best answer is to see the connection between verses 1 and 2. My suggestion is that verse 2 is the, uh, is the realistic explanation of the more symbolic verse 1. So verse 1 talks about sacrifices in worship. Verse 2 talks more about your mind and it being renewed and doing the will of God. And the explicit link to show you that Paul is thinking that way is his repetition of the word acceptable in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, present your bodies holy and acceptable to God. Verse 2. Use your renewed mind to prove what is the will of God, what, you know, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So I think there's probably a very close link in offering your body to God as an acceptable sacrifice to God and doing the acceptable will of God. So with that, let's take a look at verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. So let's look at the activities of spiritual worship. Look in the first half of verse 2. We have 
Okay, here, I'm sorry, here comes the Greek again. We have two present tense verbs, okay? In Greek, present tense means an ongoing action. And they're both imperative verbs, okay? Uh, that means that an imperative is actually a command that we're supposed to obey. Uh, the first one is negative, or it's telling us not to do something. So let's look at that one first. It says, do not be conformed to this world or age. And this is where I actually find Philip's paraphrase to be very helpful in capturing the concept of what Paul's trying to say. Philip says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. When Paul says world, he means the system of beliefs and values of the contemporary culture. That's what he means. The sum of contemporary thinking and values forms the moral atmosphere of our society, and it's dominated by Satan. We remember that, right? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God, little g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know what? If we're actually not actively vigilant, our fallen nature, our old man, can easily become enticed and buy in or value that prevailing moral atmosphere. Make no mistake, this is a very real spiritual battleground. And it's a good thing Pastor Jim had just finished a series on spiritual warfare because those lessons are critical to how we live our lives in this world, okay? In 1 Peter 1.14, Peter gives a similar command to what Paul has given us here. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then John tells us just how serious the implications are if we ignore this command. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's serious. God's plan and desire for his children is not being conformed to the values and thinking of this fallen world. Instead, Paul gives a positive command in the other part of verse 2 that tells us what we are to be. Take a look at that. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Greek word for transformed is where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's a present tense, which is what ongoing action, and it's a command that we obey. But there's, some, there's a caveat here. This verb is also passive. Uh-oh. Hmm, that seems like a paradox, right? I'm supposed to obey it, yet it's passive. Passive means it indicates that, that we're being acted upon. So who do you think is actively transforming our minds in this case? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, exactly. But how? As we meditate on and study Scripture and through the faithful ministry of other believers. They have thought of that one before, have we? We have to understand that God has ordained the means by which He transforms His children. First, quickly, we'll take a look at these. Sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the, same in, in, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. Hmm. How about Romans 8, 29 and 30? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because the Holy Spirit does the work. Secondly, sufficiency of the Word of God. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His very precious and great promises. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Holy Spirit, Word of God, Body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking what? The truth. In love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, beloved, God uses all of these means to accomplish the transformation of our mind. Now, the purpose is not so much right thinking, although that's very important, right thinking. But his purpose is to change what we value. Because what we value will display itself in our thinking and in our conduct. And David captures the essence of this when he says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David valued God. David loved God more than all the blessings that God provided and more than all the pleasures that the world offered. So much so that he applied himself to what he valued most. And we, as believers in Christ, have a responsibility to actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our progressive sanctification. And that's made very apparent here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And Peter reminds us again in 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. See, the active battle, here's the concept, the active battle to resist being pressed into the world's mold, the continual active cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work in transforming our minds and thus our values, this is our spiritual worship to God. And it yields a very huge spiritual result. So let's take a look at the last part of verse 2. The result of spiritual worship. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a very, very significant statement. Because it shows that in order to discern the will of God for our lives, believers can't just depend on their conscience. Why is that? Because our conscience is indeed very important, but it must constantly be sent back to the school of Scripture to receive instruction from the Holy Spirit. It is in this manner that believers become and remain aware of God's will. So which will of God are we able to discern in this case? Is it God's decretive will or His preceptive will? Well, certainly it's his preceptive will that's found in scriptures because his decretive will is not fully revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, For the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law, of this law. So God's decretive will isn't something that we sin against. That's his eternal plan. It's going to take place regardless of what you do. Okay? It's his preceptive will that's found in the written word that, is, that can be disobeyed and is disobeyed by us every day. Of this will, R.C. Sproul writes, the precepts, statutes, and commandments that he delivers to his people make up the preceptive will. They express and reveal to us what is right and proper for us to do. The perceptive will is God's rule for righteousness for our lives, and it's by this rule that we are governed. And what does Paul say are the contents of God's perceptive will that he wants us to do and to be? Well, it's identified in the end of verse 2 in our main text. The answer is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, is there anything in God's preceptive will that isn't good, acceptable, and perfect? No. <laughs> that means all of it. Okay? He's talking about all of it. And the more that we live in accordance with this will and value it highly, the more also through the experience that we will learn to know that will and to rejoice in that knowledge. Can you rejoice today that you know, treasure, and obey God's precepts from the heart? Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8, 
For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, and I'm getting to wrap up here. He told the woman at the well in John 4, in verses 23 and 24, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus was telling her that God requires worship from the heart and a worship that's grounded in the revealed truth about who God is and what He requires. And this has been God's mandate from the very beginning. Our spiritual worship is a continual renewal where old values die and new ones come to life. It's the dying of old ways of treasuring the television and food and money and you fill in the blank, okay? And it's the awakening of new spiritual taste buds. Listen to Paul's heart from Philippians 3, and I'm almost done. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as garbage, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And may share in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. That, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The essence, folks, of spiritual worship is being satisfied in God and cherishing Christ as gain. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, is it saying anything different? So based on what God has done for us through Christ, obedience from the heart, a heart of gratitude, it's a no-brainer. So the question that each of us has to answer then is this. Is Jesus your treasure? Or is he just a trophy on a shelf? That's the, answer. That's the question that we have to answer. Is Jesus your treasure? Or is he just a trophy on a shelf? We all have to answer that question. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give, we give you our lives. May our heart, our minds, and our desires be yours. May our hands and feet and voices move as you would choose.
May our moments and days flow with endless praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.